0: The Dive Podcast. shooting out of the pipe under there mm. like five gallons of water just went onto our floor it was funny though because i couldn't i just like stared at it for 10 minutes like i couldn't do anything about it i was just
1: like uh i do that sometimes in situations like that where i'm like i'm just gonna pretend that i found this 10 minutes from now <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah my brain was just like
0: bucket this sucks for me <laughs> yeah good thing we don't have downstairs neighbors Do we need to introduce ourselves? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We always have to do. Yeah, I think so. Well, this is the Dive Podcast. My name is Ben, and I'm here with the rest of the band Dive. Hello, Ben. What's your name? Andrew Bailey.
2: My name's Colin Caulfield, and Mm -hmm. I'm Cole.
0: Zachary Cole
1: Smith. Yep. Yeah. Thanks for throwing in the last name there. It makes me feel less uncomfortable doing it. Yeah. Because I have to do it. I'm Benjamin David Newman. If I say, hey, everybody, I'm Andrew, for the rest of the episode, they're going to have no idea who Billy is. <laughs> and just say Bailey,
2: <laughs> And just say that's Bailey. we all call you Bailey.
1: Hi, I'm Bailey. That's, <laughs> that's strange. No one that's ever introduces themselves. literally what
2: we all call you.
1: Yeah, but who do you know that introduces themselves with their last name?
2: If everyone calls you their, your last name, then it's okay. If I was just like, yes, sup, y'all, I'm Caulfield, like, <laughs> it wouldn't fly, <laughs> but it's okay with you.
1: <laughs> Should I just give in? No, I, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I'm, just a, I'm Andrew Bailey. Live everybody. Your truth.
3: What do people mishear y'all's names as? Dave is
0: one I get all the time. Dave. Dave. How do you get Dave? I don't know. Ben. Colon. Sometimes.
2: Colon. I mean,
1: yeah. Some. Yeah. You guys are making this up.
2: No, I'm not. Colon. Colon I get Colon's Dan a common all the time. name. Colin Powell, <laughs> Powell is like yeah, a, for a like
1: a for day.
3: one guy.
2: <laughs> yeah, but like. People write it on, like, if I get, like, coffee or something.
0: My phone auto-corrects it to Colin all the time. Yeah. Also, uh,
2: my old neighbors, your now neighbors, mm-hmm. Bailey, yeah. um, they called me Collins the entire oh, time yeah. I really? lived there, and I never corrected them because they were so friendly to me. Yeah. And so I just rolled with it. They'd be like, hey, Collins. <laughs> and the whole family did.
1: Yeah, I had that in when I was living in Manhattan. My neighbor called me Henry. <laughs> and i just let it slide too many times that i couldn't correct her after a while and we became really good friends <laughs> what
0: sucks though is if you let that go on long enough and then they find out mm-hmm. through other means they're like so embarrassed
1: yeah oh god yeah like jacob or what's his name oh, yeah. oh god, god.
0: that's a good story yeah
2: <laughs> we did a tour in italy and there was this dude who was taking us around he was our like tm for the tour and what did we call
1: him Frankie, Francisca. We called him
2: Frankie because someone that was corresponding with us before the tour via email was named Frankie. And we just assumed it, it was, was him. It wasn't even
1: Frankie. His name was Francisca. Yeah. Right. And we yeah. started yeah. calling so we him, just Frank. call him
2: Frankie. And for the whole tour, it was like five days or something. We called this man Frankie. And he was so nice. And then at the very last moment when he was dropping us off at the airport, he was like, hey, guys, it was so fun. I just wanted to let you know that uh, my name isn't <laughs> Frankie. No, no.
0: It's, it's because...
2: We the met, promoter
0: of the very last yeah. show of the tour, he was Francisco. Yeah, and he had been and the he, guy. And we were like, hey, Francisco. And he's like, what? That's Jacoba. Yeah. And we were <laughs> like, oh, yeah, right? that's, that's how I remember.
1: Frankie was like, hey, I want you to meet the actual Francisco. And...
0: Oh, right. The moment
2: at the airport was when we all like profusely apologized. Yeah. yeah. So we were I like, hey, terrible. we're really sorry, man.
0: He's yeah. like, yeah. Okay. wait, he never corrected us I the know. whole door.
1: Yeah. He thought it was funny. He was just getting his shits. It, it was because like the first hotel that we had to check into, the last promoter had set it up, the real Frank had set it up. Oh. And so I went in to check in with Jacopo and he gave Francisco's name. And so I was like, oh, okay, this fool's name is Frank. <laughs> that guy was cool i wonder where he is now
0: italy i would guess probably in
2: turin or something
0: (laughs) wasn't he from uh milan i don't know maybe i don't know that's where we started the tour i think yeah he was cool
2: as fuck yeah i like that guy
0: the dive podcast a bunch of drugs just got legalized or a bunch of states softened their drug policy. They did. Uh, Oregon decriminalized hard drugs. New Jersey. This is funny. New Jersey legalized weed, so New York is just going to be filled with Jersey weed. Like,
2: yeah. why would New York just miss out on that money? It's still medicinally legal, but not
1: immigrationally. Yeah, yeah. And there's like two dispensaries. Right. Like it's. I don't know anybody that has medical weed in New York, but yeah, now it's just right across the river. Although when Massachusetts legalized, there wasn't a big like influx of mass weed. But they
0: didn't do it the way that like Colorado did where it's just like you go to the store and buy it. Like I don't think you can just oh, go really? I think it's like you have to have some kind of credential to get weed.
3: And also like all drugs in New York flow through Jersey. So it would yeah. make way more sense. Yeah, that's true. They're just going to get that tax money,
1: though. When I saw that there was on the ballot, I was like, yo, I'm about to open up a ferry.
0: <laughs> you know what
1: I mean? Like a weed-themed ferry. You got bridges to more Oregon. More money, more money. No, to Jersey, <laughs> to Oregon. Yeah, I mean, it, I thought the same thing when we visited Oregon, um, like, right when Washington had legalized, but Oregon hadn't yet, and I would be taking the bus up to Washington, and I was like, yo, so much money to be made here. But, hey, especially in Oregon, I'm, I'm psyched for this treat uh, decriminalization of all drugs i feel like that's been a long time coming yeah
2: yeah what's what city in canada did that vancouver I think yeah it yeah. been for a long time and it's been like pretty successful right Right.
1: yeah i was talking to ali my girlfriend earlier about it and she, you know she's sending me the memes of like she sent me a picture of rainbow road from mario kart and it's like what driving in oregon is going to be like now <laughs> and i was like honestly it's going to be the same yeah you know, like people are the people who had hard drugs at you know they weren't leaving them at home. You know you don't leave hard drugs at home because you're afraid of getting pulled over. Um,
3: I mean, in like every you know this experiment has been done for decades in yeah. in in Europe and other places, and like all it does is just like you know bring down the rate of people that are incarcerated and and bring down the rate of drug use. Like you can't you it's like not hard drugs in Amsterdam and stuff where you know all that stuff is decriminalized it's it's not something that's just around
0: decrim versus legalization is so weird though because it's like go buy it from the drug dealer but then you won't you'll just get a ticket for having it to me it's just like just legalize it
1: yeah but I mean, it, it kind of just like undoes some of the legacy of the war on drugs, you like know with I mean? prisons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, it
3: turns out drugs won the war on drugs. Yeah,
1: dr- yeah, drugs prevailed, <laughs> and and they were that was the point of the war on drugs. The point of the war on drugs wasn't to like rid the country of drugs; it was to have an excuse to put people in prison, yeah. right? Uh,
3: and it's the same thing with how like you know defunding police is a step towards mm-hmm. abolition, and like you you kind of have to it like all these ideas, you know, like abolishing, you know, like abolishing slavery back in the day was like all it was like only voiced by radicals. And then it's like you then like the ideas become gradually, Mm -hmm. you know, brought in the population. So like right now, the only people are saying abolish prisons are radicals. Because people can't imagine a world without without prisons.
1: Yeah, exactly. But You just start
3: one thing at a time. Like, you know, people are generally opposed to the death penalty. So, like, you just kind of take a step from there. Take a step from there. It's the same thing with yeah. decriminalization. Finding common ground and then
1: taking baby steps.
0: Yeah, that was a really cool part of that Angela Davis book, mm-hmm. saying like even people who were against slavery back in the day, they didn't know because like the economy was based around slavery and so they didn't know how to like solve these problems. They they just knew that it was wrong, but they weren't like, we have all the answers. Here's what you need to do. Step one. It was just like, we like slavery is wrong. And And I feel like it's similar with the prison argument now.
1: Yeah. And the drug argument, you know, like, especially if you go back and learn the history of why specific drugs were decriminalized at certain times in our country's history, um, And, like, how many people have ended up in prison because of that, you know? Like, um, weed, for example, it used to be, like, a staple crop in the United States. It was hemp. We made everything out of it, you know, Mm -hmm. from the first flag to the Declaration of Independence made on hemp. Model T. Yeah, exactly. Henry Ford made an entire car out of hemp. You know, like he is, He must have been so fucked up. Yeah, dude. he was blazed out. On <laughs> well, like the worst ditch weed possible. <laughs> but then, so you've got DuPont and William Randolph Hearst who have a bunch of investments in paper um, coming from trees rather than hemp and also oil coming from fossil fuels rather than hemp seed oil. And so they just create this propaganda campaign, call it marijuana, get it illegalized. And then we're still putting people in prison for that, mm-hmm. you know.
3: And there's like a whole new capitalist economy that yeah. profits
1: from right. that. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of the point. And the same is true for every drug going down the list. Like, there's a really good book by Benjamin Breen called uh, "The Age of Intoxication" um, that just like studies. It's like a deep dive into the history of what we call drugs and how it started out as like drugs and spices were kind of in the same category. And the ones that became taboo or illegal did so for like really specific reasons. A lot of the times like racist. And um, we're still living in the echoes of that era now.
0: It's a really funny thing, the word drugs, like how it just means all drugs when it's like Mm -hmm. something like LSD and then like speed. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, those might have some. Connection, But just like some drugs that are complete opposites of each other and ones that are completely legal. Like alcohol is like the most intense, you know, dissociative depressant that exists. And it's just like in every store in America.
2: Mm -hmm. And then there's like a fleet of prescription drugs. Right.
0: That are like totally culturally
2: acceptable for
1: some reason. Heroin is bad, but if you break your arm, we'll give you some. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Or like we'll give speed to children because they Mm -hmm. can't focus in class but like if you make it yourself then it's illegal Mm. the dive podcast we wanted to talk about like drug music and just like there's such a connection between drugs and like rock and roll but even like jazz and and everything like but it's, you know, there's, like, the 60s, like, psychedelic movement was just, like, let's go to the circus. Like, do de, do de, do 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 <laughs> You know, like, that was, like, their version of, like, drugs. But then, like, jazz dudes were just, like, you know, like, nodding out while, like, yeah. playing trumpet or whatever. And that's, like, not the same. I
3: don't uh, know. I think that that is still a thing, like you know there's there's like these massively different types of drug music you know there's like like rave music or EDM and stuff mm-hmm. which is like kind of based around like one type of drug culture and then there's you know the stuff that's kind of more our thing which is like i feel like it's a difference between social drugs and antisocial drugs and it's always music that's made like a, in within the culture of antisocial drugs is is the shit that i like
0: even within rave music there was like the heavy music they would play at the rave. And then the, what is it called? Like the come down room or whatever, where like people would just listen to like ambient music, like all their drugs are wearing off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'd be in that room the whole night. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I'd be DJing that room. (laughs) Music for airports all night. Mm -hmm. But I also feel like specifically, like we're going to talk about slow dive. I feel bad saying drug music because it just, like, makes a bunch of assumptions about the people making the music that I feel like a lot well, of drug bands don't even do drugs. Mm-hmm.
3: No, but I think that that's, like, you know, there are, like, two different types of drug music. There's, like, music that makes you feel like you're on drugs, and then there's music made by people on drugs. Mm-hmm. And 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 Slowdive, you know, I think definitely is the first of those. You know, it's, it has this kind of, like, narcotic quality. But also, like, the lyrics to Allison, he... Is like um I have him I have him written down. He's Listen like Listen close and don't be stoned. Listen close, don't be stoned. And then there's a line with your talking and your pills, um, Allison, I'll drink your wine, I'll wear your clothes when we're both high. Yeah. You know, it's like kind of all the lyrics on this record are are pretty adolescent, you know, mm-hmm. which makes sense because they're extremely young. Um, but there is like this kind of undercurrent where, you know, I think it falls in the category of of drug music. Yeah. I don't think it's like the first thing you think about, but I think that there's, there's qualities, um, of it. That's like very druggy, which is like, I think kind of revolution. Like there's, there's been a connection between drugs and music forever. Um, but like, you know, there's like sex drugs and rock and roll or whatever, like sex and rock and roll are kind of already intertwined and then like the introduction of drugs like creates this new element yeah
2: but i think like certain certain genres or bands or albums that have like a drug connotation that's something that gets like ascribed to that piece or that group of people after the fact and a lot of times it doesn't really have to do specifically with the details of a band i was trying to find this wire interview with trish keenan the singer from broadcast And I couldn't find it. It's probably in print somewhere. Um, But she just talks at length about the notion of psychedelia and how it's actually completely divorced from drugs. And that, like, it's, like, mostly just a cultural association because of, like, the hippie movement. Mm -hmm. But, like, actually, psychedelia is this, like, spiritual, like, like, very nuanced, like, personal thing that you can tap into. And, like, with the Slow Dive record, for example, I feel like the the, like emotional quality of the music has has to do a lot more with them just being like teenagers when they made it mm-hmm. and like their whatever they were going through and then after the fact people were like oh this sounds like drugs I do think that it is something
3: that's ascribed and a lot of stuff in music is ascribed by the listener but I do think there are kind of like signifiers of like drug music you know like yeah. repetition minimalism like like visceral physicality Mm -hmm. they're like they're these kind of sonic signifiers that um you know step across genres and and kind of are like like or whatever it's called like prescribe drug music onto the listener rather than um it being something that we're just like putting on there yeah
1: i think there's a lot of examples of both you know like i remember reading an interview with the Queens of the Stone Age guy, Josh something, Mm -hmm. where they asked him like, so how does it feel to be, you know, like the prominent band in stoner rock? And he was like, what? Don't all bands smoke weed? (laughs) It's just something that was prescribed onto him that he didn't really get. But then when you listen to it, there is a difference between what he's doing and what other rock bands were doing at the time and whether or not it's a stoner aesthetic or not is, like, up to debate, I guess. Yeah, Mm -hmm. some
3: bands just embrace it way more. Yeah, 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 exactly.
1: Yeah, I guess that's kind of what it comes down to, is, like, whether or not a band really takes on that aesthetic and markets it, basically. And then it
3: kind of, like, feeds into itself. They're like, oh, we're influenced by sleep or something. It's Mm -hmm. like, oh, you smoke hella weed. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know, like, Cypress Hill, for example, came out and had, like, one weed song on their first record. But then, you know, that... Blew up for them versus their like gangster rap vibe, and so now they're just a stoner hip hop, yeah. Thing, you know? But <laughs> like it didn't have to be that way, they just made more money.
0: There's this Pink Floyd documentary where uh, I think it's David Gilmore getting interviewed. And they're asking him about drugs, and he's like, "We don't do drugs at all. Like, we just like make weird music. This is just what we're into." But then at the end of the interview, he's like, "You can trust us," and he gives like a weird look to the yeah. camera. So I
1: don't know if he's being coy or not. But I don't know. But an, an example of that that I know for sure is Acid Mothers Temple, the psychedelic band from Japan, mm-hmm. where you listen to it or even you watch them, and you're like, "Wow, they're so high. They must just like eat acid for breakfast." Um, but they've tripped like twice in their life. You know, they're living in Japan. You can't get acid over there. They don't even smoke weed.
3: It's just like mythology. It's there for yeah. the, you know, I feel like that happens with us where people are like, okay, you're a drug band because like you guys do drugs. <laughs> but then like we don't do drugs anymore. Yeah. So what does that mean? And then people, you know, there's like the, the YouTube commenter that's like, like no junk, no soul mm-hmm. or whatever. But it's all <laughs> just like dumb bullshit, like. Fanboy, yeah, mythology.
1: People that, who have never done the drug,
3: yeah, and like the for me, the the thing that I see in a lot of drug music is just this like overwhelming sense of tragedy, mm-hmm. you know. And like all, if you look at you know whether it's um, Nirvana or Elliot Smith or or Cocteau Twins, who I think we'll talk about today, there's just this like sense of tragedy, and it's a, a sad story because addiction just destroyed their lives. Mm-hmm. And then people are like, "Cool." <laughs> it's like, "Fuck you! I'm not like here to just, yeah. you know, I'm not, I'm not your fucking pay pig."
1: Right? Yeah. It, it reminds me of the poet John Berryman, who said that like he always wishes bad things happen to him because it's the only way he'll be successful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But um, that also reminds me though of like the difference between, or like when I hear drug music, I think, okay, that means the band was on drugs when they made it um and you know like beatles revolver was their weed record sure. and, you know, and um but the idea of drug music meaning music that acts as a drug in this in the way that like it makes you feel high that is more how i see slow dive. you know mm-hmm. i don't picture these kids like shooting up and making this music they're probably just normalized dudes like having a couple beers maybe smoking a J, um, but then they make this music that gives you the same feeling that you get when you're like taking Molly or something.
3: Yeah. It's like the blissed out side of, yeah. of drug music, which I think is like, you know, there's like chaotic and terrifying drug music. And then there's kind of like blissed out mm-hmm. drug music. And, um, I think the third
2: side of that, uh, three sided coin <laughs> <laughs> is that, uh, um, sometimes it, it has to do with whether or not the music is good to do drugs to, too right so yeah. like that's the third part like like friend of the podcast mac demarco can never escape this mm-hmm. idea that he's a stoner I and mean, right. just because his music is like nice to smoke weed too i think so all these kids are like oh he must smoke yeah. weed all the time but he
1: never does you know yeah that's true i guess i kind of lumped that in the same category um as like the music makes you feel high yeah it is also it really induces, good, you know because i listened to the slow dive record all the way through once And then I took an edible, which I don't do very often anymore. (laughs) And so I was like in a not normal headspace. Sure. And then it all made sense. I was like, oh, this is incredible. And it wasn't anything that I could latch onto and point to and be like, this is what's good about it. It was just like the way that it could push my emotions to the forefront of my mind Mm -hmm. and just like overwhelming senses of of, like going to just like pure joy and then dread like a minute later and stuff like that Mm -hmm. was remarkable. And like I don't get that from really any music. Mm -hmm. or at least not that much um and and i asked my girlfriend because i don't you know i don't listen to shoegaze and but my girlfriend does a lot and so i was like hey ali uh what is it about slow dive that's good and she thought about it and she was like honestly it just gives me a tingle like when i listen to it and i was like oh like asmr um and which is like for those who don't know, ASMR is the thing where you listen to people chewing with the mic really up close or something, and it elicits this physical response in your nervous system. Um, for certain people. For certain people, yeah, yeah. Not everybody can get it. I don't mm-hmm. get it. Yeah, I don't I get, get it either. Um, I get it. You get it? Yeah, for not. I don't listen to like people
0: chewing on shit, but there's some where people do stuff with sand. Oh, uh, yeah. But also, when I'm fucking with a like my m s twenty with headphones on, and there's it's like you know you go to a low frequency and it sounds like a
1: bass or whatever, but
0: then you take it even lower and it just sounds like a series of clicks. it's like hmm, I yeah. can't explain it, and it makes my brain feel like it's vibrating,
1: holy shit, God, I wish I got that, <laughs> but yeah, and so and they don't even know what it is what what causes it, um or why some people get it, and some people don't um but it's described as being like climaxing during sex like the the mr and asmr stands for a euphemism for what for what
2: (laughs) (laughs) what is mr for cumin
1: i don't know i i I don't remember oh yeah like something
3: response like uh (laughs) Yeah, yeah yeah
1: um but anyways uh and so could it be that the thing about shoegaze that i don't appreciate is because i don't or am not. I
0: don't think so because I don't get it's that meridian response. Meridian, Aut- yeah. Autonomous
1: sensory meridian response. Yeah, and meridian response just means ejaculating. The closest
3: thing or I organizing. ever experienced to figuring out what ASMR was all about was like before Animal Crossing came out. <laughs> I was I just like didn't understand what it was. I was like, "Wait, so this is just like a game for babies." You know, and I mm-hmm. I asked I asked my friend who was super into it. I was like, "What is the deal with this wire adults playing this like baby game and he was like well it's basically like asmr Huh. and i was like okay so then i played the game and i you know i wasn't having a meridian response <laughs> but um there was just this like i don't know this like serenity or something Huh. i don't know if it's the same thing yeah
1: Allie describes it as therapy
0: which thing ASMR An, animal, no, crossing? animal crossing. Yeah.
1: I don't think she does ASMR but she plays Animal Crossing.
0: Yeah. That's how I feel about Minecraft.
1: Right, like, yeah. yeah, I
0: remember that yeah. it's Same just, thing. It's just like you can kind of zone out and mm. just do stuff and not think about it and relax and these really nice sounds accompany it. Yeah, mm-hmm. you're
3: like creating this world around you. It's like this like I I feel like when we first started getting into Minecraft you were like it it triggers this part of my brain that Like, is the same thing when I want to just like walk into the woods and disappear from civilization (laughs) Mm -hmm. forever? It's because you do that.
0: That is the game. (laughs) It's you start (laughs) in the woods. Yeah.
1: Um, Well, anyways. All right. So, yeah, let's listen to Allison. Is that the one we picked? Yeah. Sure. Okay. Cool. Yeah.
0: Allison from Suvlaki. Great song off a great album First song on the album But when we talked yesterday About doing like a shoegaze episode I was kind of like I definitely want to do this But When, when we were doing Deceiver You know Sonny worked with Sonny who produced Deceiver Worked with My Bloody Valentine Which is like I think to all of us Like a pretty big deal So we like went in so deep with everything shoegaze and like how they got the, you know, the trade secrets behind the sounds and stuff. And I was kind of feeling like a little burned out on shoegaze and also just like, okay, we made Deceiver. Well, also we have been getting called a shoegaze band forever. And I think part of the reason why we went into the shoegaze zone on Deceiver was so that we could kind of like close that chapter of the band and be like, okay, we did the shoegaze thing. Now we can move on. Yeah, and so yeah, I was feeling a little burned out. But then, listening to this album again for the first time in a long time, I was just like, "Fuck, this shit is so good. It's insanely good. This album specifically is incredible." So once again, Sue Vlaki, um by Slow Dive. Um, what year was that? Nineteen ninety four. Ninety four.
3: Yeah, it's kind of a late entry into the shoegaze canon, you know, which I think was part of why it was just not accepted by critics. Yeah, um, at the time it came out, because it, you know, Loveless had already been out for three years, and that was kind of like the ultimate statement. And My Bloody Valentine had been a band for ten years at that point. Um So, like, it's it's kind of an in, it's interesting now that it's looked on as like one of the the greats of the genre because it it was kind of late to the party.
0: Yeah, one of the common themes of this band is like music journalism and record labels fucking them. Like, I
1: feel bad for them. Obviously, they're (laughs) doing good now and it's awesome. I think it's important to remember also that at the same time as when Nirvana changed everything. Yeah. You know, like they came out right... As what is cool drastically changed. Um, and they just weren't cool anymore. And Shoegaze was only cool for like two seconds anyway. Yeah, which is crazy. It really was.
3: And it was, it was super insular too. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't this like worldwide phenomenon, it was like very localized.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And Oasis was popping up at the same time,
3: right? Yeah, it was. Yeah,
1: exactly. Cause, or So Shoegaze was born out of dream pop, but, and then Oasis is brick pop or it was just kind
3: of like there was like you know there was creation records which is like the label that signed oasis famously um is this dude alan mcgee scottish guy um had a label that he had been like jesus and mary chain's manager who was Mm -hmm. like kind of like arguably the first shoegaze band i guess you could say um and then started a a label um, that was like kind of like a place for Primal Scream, who's um, Hmm. the project from Bobby Gillespie, who's the drummer of Jesus Mary Chain at the beginning. And, um, you know, it kind of became a place for that. And then he, you know, kind of started bringing all these other bands. And it was this like, you know, massive drug culture at that label. Um, And like, you know, he went kind of the hardest of anyone. And, you know, there was signed MBV, almost got, um, bankrupted by Loveless. And then, um, Oasis came along and like, not only completely outclassed him drug wise, just like put him (laughs) like out to pasture in terms of being able to keep up. But then it kind of like spawned this whole new thing where then it was like, you know, pulp and Oasis and blur and Elastica Mm -hmm. and all the like things that became Britpop. But that was like in the kind of tail end of Shoegaze, which is what I think attracted. Um, yeah, that was one of the Oasis things I was to surprised
1: to hear. I was surprised to hear that um, when Slowdive toured the U.S., it was opening for Blur. Like they were talking about their biggest shows in the U.S. before the reunion. Like, well, we opened for Blur doing 600 cap like venues. It's like what the hell? But it's because this is before song two. Mm-hmm. It was '91, I think, was that tour. And so was Blur a shoegaze band, or were they just
2: that? Was just like the
3: brick it's like
1: alternative. Thing.
2: Okay. I think what we can get into this at length for sure, but we talked about it when we talked about Noi and Krautrock and how it's like a genre that, like Loveless is like the shoegaze record, Mm -hmm. right? And like that Noi record is kind of like the Krautrock record. But then the genre fans out in a lot of different directions. And like Suvlaki at a lot of moments like sounds more like Britpop than shoegaze to me yeah like, like a lot more especially because there's so much more clarity in the lyrics um and like that was one of the hallmarks of shoegaze was like my bully valentine and like cocteau twins too like cocteau twins there actually weren't really any lyrics in a lot of the songs but my Bloody valentine like the lyrics were like almost indecipherable um and even when they were decipherable they were so vague and then you have a song called like uh is it Here She Comes Now? hmm That song is like, it sounds way more like Oasis than My Bloody Valentine to I me. love that song. But
3: then there's also, you know, Track Two. I can't remember what it's called, is just a straight up Cocteau Twins thing. Yeah, like Rachel's sure. vocal doubled and like all the tricks. Of, yeah. You know, it seems like they were pretty uh, reverent of the um, bands that came before them.
0: It's a really versatile record.
2: Yeah. They're a versatile band, yeah. Because even on those their early demo tapes, which some of them got released as EPs, yeah. I the know first one tape that that one we were listening to on YouTube, um, a lot of those songs are on the first Slowdive record. So they ended up getting re released. But then there's other demo tapes that are even more different. That sound like a lot more like Mojave Three, mm-hmm. which is the band that they started after Slowdive broke up but then that that EP we were, or the demo tape that we were listening to sounds way more like straight ahead shoegaze before so, they had like figured out their like sound so
0: to speak. Mhm. It was their demo tape, which I think is what got them signed to Creation yeah. and then they released it on Creation as their first EP. Oh, okay. Um in 1990. So they started in 89 and the two Just I Just like Yukon. I know. <laughs> wow. I love it. The two, you know, main Members are Neil and Rachel. Yeah, um, who are the ones who are in it the whole time. But then I think when they reformed in 2014, they reenlisted the original drummer. bass player or drummer, something know. like that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I feel bad like not knowing everyone's name, but yeah. <laughs> um, and they're named after a Susie and the Banshees song that was called "Slow Dive." Incredible
3: and- song. We should play a clip of that song because it's just mm-hmm. so insanely good, like extremely forward-thinking pop music.
0: Yeah, it's from 82.
1: I didn't know that that was Robert Smith. Yeah, he
3: was in He was in uh, Playing in Susie and the
1: Banshees. Yeah. Wait, I didn't know that either. Yeah. yeah. And one of the things that I was watching about it was saying that there was specifically his guitar playing in Susie that was sort of like the genesis of the shoegaze sound. Mm-hmm. And it reminded me a lot of something I learned from you, because like, we have very different guitar playing styles mm-hmm. where I... I'm like attacking the strings, you know, like I like punch the shit out of them and I get a lot of, uh, tone out of doing that. And I like that, but dive it's the opposite. And I had a really hard time when I first joined the band. Cause you'd always be like, play lighter, play lighter, mm-hmm. play lighter. And, and one thing specifically that stuck out is when you were like, just let these things make the noise pointing at the pedals you know you can play light but if you've got all the power in these things and that's what Robert Smith was doing in Susie where they were like it was incredible going to a show and watching somebody just stand there like looking like he's barely touching his guitar and then just hearing this wall of sound come out of it um yeah
3: that was kind of the like the you know i mean that's obviously where the name shoegaze comes from but i think that was kind of like a revelation in terms of rock music was like the performance aspect of it is you kind of let the music Mm -hmm. um speak for itself and and so like there's like the stereotype of the band just kind of standing there
1: yeah and it was less of like that anti-performance that nirvana was doing at the same time Mm -hmm. where it's like we're gonna intentionally just stand here and do shit whereas with shoegaze there was more of a reason for it you know you could play a nirvana song jumping around like an asshole yeah but you would not be able to do shoegaze I tried. <laughs> yeah, I mean, even
3: some of the, you know, when we were working with Sonny, who had that experience with um, Kevin Shields in, in Ireland, like a couple of months before we recorded the record, and, you know, I was doing kind of the, the like the Kevin Shields, he calls it the glide guitar, but the, mm-hmm. you know, the you like s- strum the chord and you kind of bend into the chord and with the tremolo bar on the guitar, and then you have this like reverse um, reverb and a lot of distortion. And so it creates this really interesting effect. Um, so we were using that, you know, making a slow, shoe uh, shoegaze record. That's kind of like a technique that you want to get used to. And, you know, playing it in front of Sonny, he just kept being like, no, yeah. like you got to, you know, <laughs> yeah. st- only I was just strokes. doing only, yeah. Like, no, I was doing only downstrokes, and he's like, you got to go up and down oh, right, 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 perfectly. Right. And I'm like, this feels so fucking weird. He's like, just do it. Yeah. There is these, there are these like kind of esoteric little technique things that I
2: think are really difficult to pull off live. Mm-hmm. I think the huge difference guitar sound wise with between My Bloody Valentine and Slowdive is like Slowdive is just drenched in reverb. Mm-hmm. Like that's that's part of for me what takes them away from shoegaze and puts them more. Uh, in almost like ambient or like what we know of like as post rock now because mm-hmm. it's just like a, it's such a wash and it washes over you in a different way than something like MBV does which is like harsh and there are moments in on suvlaki where like the guitars get really loud and they have this like harsh thing about them but it's never like or very rarely is it distorted right mm-hmm. i mean there there are definitely distorted moments right. but not the same way yeah I mean, Allison, even like right before the chorus hits and that high guitar part comes in, and it's just like these like sirens almost. And it's just like, I read somewhere that that was like the biggest thing right before they started recording Suvlaki was that they just like turned the reverb all the way up. And they were like, oh, this, now we sound different than all these bands that we're trying to mimic. And then yeah. they just committed to that.
0: Because MBV's guitar sound is like, even though it's complex sounding. It's like just a couple effects, you know, yeah. with like the way that Kevin is playing the guitar, the way he tuned the guitars, all that yeah. stuff. But slow dive sounds like they've got every pedal on at once. Yeah, you exactly. know exactly. And you can't even tell it's a guitar a lot of times. It sounds mm-hmm. synthy.
3: Yeah. And I feel like there is like I feel like there is such a tendency when talking about you guys to fix it on gear, which isn't really anything I'm into. But I feel like you can learn a little bit about their approach from just like seeing them live and seeing the amp setup. And MBV is all about these kind of like old um fender like silverface um amps that have this like kind of natural distortion and, and gain. Um and, and like a bunch of them turn up really loud. And then when you see um slowdive, they're using the the JC one twenties, the the Roland amps that are like were designed as keyboard amps and they're like famously clean. Mm. Like the just like the most pure they get really loud but it stays like perfectly clean and in a way they're frustrating amp to use because like you just you know you can't there's nothing there's there's no like natural character besides just the built-in chorus and reverb that they have which is nice but i think you can learn a little bit about their we use those amps
1: for years we did and i feel like we never even used the built-in anything right
3: we would use the chorus, kind of. I think your
2: chorus was broken
3: in oh. yours. So like,
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that was the problem, is that they broke all the
3: time. Yeah,
1: yeah nah. And they're heavy as fuck. I've got well, two broken ones at home.
0: But Neil said that he got, the on stage he has two JCs, and he got both of those with their first advance from Creation Records, mm-hmm. and they're the original. <laughs> the same fucking yeah. amps.
2: It could be that we just, like, fucking beat the shit out of yeah. our JCs. Yeah, we're Jaycees. just bad people. I
3: mean, yeah, they had like the cases that you put them in, right? You right. know, we were just throwing them
1: because they're solid state. Yeah, they're right. solid you state, so you technically be...
3: like can throw them around. But like the thing that we found is that the knobs break off.
1: Oh, right, 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 right. But how
0: we know that is, um, we we got to play with them in Portugal. Yeah, this we one did. time at Primavera, which Primavera is going to come up again, like as a kind of important piece of this puzzle. But um, it was the day before my birthday. And we were playing in Portugal and we're like playing on a big stage in front of a lot of people. And I look over and it's just the whole band of Slow Dive like watching us play.
2: (laughs) They were live streaming our set. Yeah, they had their phone
0: up. I was like, this is insane. And then after the show, we got to like ride in a van with them for like two hours. Yeah. And I was, it was like, I'm sure we've all had experiences like on tour and stuff, especially at these festivals where it's just like, I don't know. I just felt so... It felt surreal, and I felt so grateful. And just like, this is this like shouldn't be happening. This yeah. is like something out of my fantasy.
3: And they were like talking about music in the back. They're mm-hmm. like, they're like, oh yeah, man, I got the the new bounce with the you know. They were like talking about like technicalities of of like demos they're working on or some kind
0: of thing like that. Yeah, it's like, and like we could have turned around and been like, hey, dude, like what's Allison about? Like who's Alison? Yeah. <laughs> But, like, it was we so much better. cooler. Yeah, it was so much cool. I mean, this is, like, a little piece of advice, maybe, to people who, like, if you meet someone famous who you, like, really love and want to ask them a bunch of questions, don't. Yeah, yeah just say what's up. They're just, yeah.
3: like, they're people.
0: It was so much cooler to just, like, hear them talk about normal stuff and just be there rather than, like...
2: Well, also, like, you have to remember, like, this isn't even, like patting ourselves on the back or whatever, but we are peers of that band now. Like we play, we played right before them on mm-hmm. the main stage at a big festival and we make similar type of music, like, and they like us and they like us. And they're like, they're also a contemporary band now because that last record they put out was like extremely good and yeah. they're, they're still very relevant. So like as a band, when you encounter people like that, it's always better to just like look at them and be like, Oh, you're just like, you know, you're part of the scene and I'm yeah. just going to talk to you like normal despite
1: did you try the buffet yet yeah man the buffet is fucking cracking the shrimp
2: man yum (laughs) hurry up though this lunch ticket runs out in 30 minutes (laughs) no but i think it yeah it just said it like it depends on how you like approach the situation because i've i've run into people that i really really love and respect and i've still talked about music with them yeah but it's just kind of how you like Approach the conversation. You don't just like come off the bat yeah. and say like what What's Allison about? Yeah, exactly. You, know, you can still talk about gear without being a Punisher or whatever. But
3: yeah, that yeah. was. Do uh, you remember that show we played with Weezer? Mm-hmm. I I was really into that band, and I was like extremely young. Yeah, as I think were. all boys were. Absolutely, um, all boys. <laughs> <laughs> very boy music. Um, but yeah, like you know, they were just kind of around, and Bailey was playing catch mm-hmm. with. With rivers, right for like three hours. No, it's like an hour. I I don't remember being that long. You were playing catch for (laughs) hell of long indoors, and (laughs) then they were were just kind of like, yeah, in the basement, and like with uh, a baseball. uh, Yeah, yeah, with a baseball, and they had gloves, right?
1: (laughs) Yeah, we had gloves. I remember because I, I just out of habit threw a curve. And then I was like, "Oh my god, I just threw a curve at Rivers Cuomo without <laughs> giving him any warning." And but it, thankfully there was really low ceilings because we were in the basement, and the the ball hit the ceiling and bounced to the floor. So,
3: but there was like a moment at the end of the thing where we had been kind of um, just like around them for a long time and like comfortable enough to just like you know walk into their room and talk about stuff. But mm-hmm. at the end of the night, I asked about some some line on one song i think like some line from uh uh el scorcho i think there's like a line about um i can't remember what the line oh, is oh
1: right um where he uh listening to Kocho san yeah
3: yeah yeah, yeah listening yeah. to chocho san fall in love all over again i was like who's chocho san mm-hmm. he was like it's a character from an opera
1: <laughs> i was like <laughs> okay there you go. And that was it. <laughs> he probably judged you. Yeah, and never talked to you. I again. think it's
3: called like M Butterfly is yeah. the name of the opera. He was really cool about it, and she's like, "Yeah, it's an opera."
2: But you yeah. you you have to assume that like unless unless these people are like huge assholes, um, and they have no like self awareness, they've also been in that position, and they've asked someone that they really appreciate or respect a similar question. I think if you if. Especially since Cole waited to ask until the end of the night. We're, like, chilling. We did the Weezer Cruise with them. It's not like we were just, like, a stranger band opening up for them. Um, I think it's okay. Because you know that, like, Rivers Cuomo has a hero. Does he?
3: I mean,
1: mean, all musicians start as music fans. Of course, yeah.
3: Yeah, Is that whole song about, like, KISS posters. Yeah, I was going to say Ace
1: Frehley. Yeah. Or, like, some... You know, he's, like, a big meditator. He he goes on, like half year long retreats where he just meditates for like six months out of the year wow so maybe some like guru is his hero
2: i mean why do you think that he doesn't have a musical hero
1: because they blew up so young and and same i mean not like but it's when you're young that you have
3: musical heroes the most acutely i feel like so did
1: slow dive yeah, yeah but
2: whatever literal teenagers
1: <laughs> right yeah exactly and so if you ask them like hey did you ever like fanboy out on bands that you're on tour with or whatever that, that you got to meet they're probably like, yeah but i was young and then ever since then you don't or like um Tommy york talks about it because he's like i've been famous for more than half my life you know the majority of my life i've been famous yeah and so like i don't even remember being that person anymore
3: Well, I think being a a fanboy is such a huge part of the beginning of artists' careers. You know, like, Mm -hmm. you can look at Slow Dive signing to Creation, and for them, I'm sure Creation was just like, holy fuck, you know, there's like Primal Scream on here, this is insane, or like... I love I love the story, like, reading about Sid Vicious as a, as a like, 16-year-old going to New York and just, like, fanboying the New York Dolls so hard.
1: Yeah. And, or like, even, you know, like,
3: you don't think of, if you think of Sid Vicious now, you're not, like, oh, he's just, like, a, you know, a kid that's, like, a fan of Johnny mm-hmm. Thunders or something,
1: but. That was one thing I got from Kurt Cobain Journal is just how much of a fanboy he was. Yeah. And just, like, writing letters to bands that he likes and stuff. Yeah.
3: I mean, we were fanboys of, or I was a fanboy of Captured Tracks so right. hard, which is like why, you know, I really wanted to be on that label so bad.
0: The Dive Podcast. Well, that was an enjoyable tangent, um, but I just want to bring it back to Suvlocky for a moment, just um, to give some real brief context to the album. So like, you know, they started in 89 and then we talked about that demo that they put out in 1990, which um, is very good and very different from the next album, which is their first full length, what's it called again?
3: Uh, It's kind of a cheesy name.
0: Um, Just for a day. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that creation was like disappointed with that album, which kind of starts this um, trajectory with the band of like being kind of like rejected by creation and by, well, so as we also briefly touched on before, like shoegaze was not really cool anymore in 1991 or it was like losing favor because grunge and Britpop were like blowing up,
3: which it's like, it hugely influenced both of those genres. I always wonder if um, Kurt ever got to hear Loveless. Because it came say, out, like, right before Nevermind.
1: Did, or in what ways did shoegaze influence Nirvana and stuff like that?
2: I don't know. I mean, it just, it sounds like it did. Probably not much. It was, like, wasn't, I feel like Kurt Cobain was, like, really just obsessed with,
0: like, local bands.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and like.
0: like punk shit yeah but also like the pixies and stuff
2: yeah but the pixies is much different than
0: weren't they also a seattle band or no
2: no they were massachusetts oh um but i you know I, i i could see like
3: It being kind of like through an intermediary. Like, I could see the Melvins Mm -hmm. having gotten really into MBV, and then, you know, Mm -hmm. Nirvana was like deeply obsessed with the Melvins, or, you know, the Pixies. I, I could see them being extremely into.
1: Or even if you think of like the birth of grunge going as far back as like some Velvet Underground songs that just had like a really gritty guitar tone that is sort of a wall of sound for the whole song Mm -hmm. and like some people point to that as you know one of the birthplaces of shoegaze as well right like they just had the
0: same genesis or something something that came up in the noi episode and also this one is like krautrock and shoegaze and grunge were all kind of meaningless terms as far as what the music sounded like it was like more like a scene than it was like a descriptor of right. what music sounded like. Yeah,
1: that's true. When I first heard the term shoegaze, I thought it meant it was referring to like the Smashing Pumpkins and, and Nirvana's, who were just kind of on stage. It, it made me think of the episode, the Blues episode of The Simpsons, where Smashing Pumpkins <laughs> playing, and like all the kids in the crowd are just looking at their feet, and Lisa says something about how making teenagers depressed is like shooting crabs in a barrel, <laughs> or maybe Bart says it. Crabs, fish fish <laughs> crabs yeah crabs in a barrel fish you shoot oh right crabs in a barrel is a different thing <laughs> crabs, in a, crabs barrel, in a barrel crabs in a barrel is the uh, monkeys the, in a barrel no no crabs in a barrel is the allegory of like people in poverty um because if you put a bunch of crabs in a barrel as one starts to climb out the other ones pull it back down mm.
2: oh yeah and, yeah.
1: and uh, so the I allegory a bucket of
0: I don't know. Never, so never definitely not shooting crabs in a barrel. No, so what is it is shooting fish I mean, fish that would be it? pretty easy. That would probably be easier than shooting fish in a barrel.
1: I, I, you'd think so, yeah. Because, well, whatever. So,
0: 91, uh, <laughs> grunge is happening. Um, and so Alan McGee was like, all right, let's get going on this this record that you're going to make. Let's like try to make a pop record. And they're like, oh, cool, we have a bunch of songs. But they didn't actually have a bunch of songs. So they went into the studio with like no songs and just like started doing shit on the fly and uh it'd be cool to talk about
3: brian eno because i yeah. feel like it was the same thing when they
2: um when they tapped brian Eno to do the to what i'm laughing because i feel like ben was just about to start talking about it Or was oh
0: please <laughs> but, <laughs> well they wanted you know to produce the record and he was like i feel like this is like a classic eno move where he was like I was about to do a British accent, but I don't think I'm going to. (laughs) Um, Should I do the British accent? Do it,
1: do it.
0: Eno was like, oi, mate. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Oi, governor. He was like, "Um, I don't want to produce it. I want to collaborate. That's nice. a good one. Refined Brian Eno. (laughs) And uh, so they did, and like Neil went into the studio and, you know, apparently the first thing he did was, like, take the clock off the wall and, like, do a bunch of weird, like, oblique strategies type stuff. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, actually co-wrote uh, the song Sing, which is not my favorite song on the album, but the song also uh, Here She Comes, which, like, I love. It's, like, a two-minute long little, like, acoustic song that Brian Eno plays keyboard on. Um,
3: And you can totally hear it on on both. Mm-hmm. Um, It's also funny to think about, like... Them walking in, into the studio and he's pulling the oblique strategies shit and they're like they're like oh my god but now every single studio I've been to like in my life there's just the oblique strategies deck oh, yeah. like sitting like it's such a cliche of um, studio kind of like inspiration or whatever and I guess for people who don't know oblique strategies were these kind of um, like little Zen thought experiments that um, Brian Eno put into a book and into cards that yeah, are was supposed like to be like a theme. source of inspiration. So like, what's an example of one? Like, a, like It's a,
0: like have everyone in the band play an instrument that's not their instrument. Port. I think didn't
2: he didn't need to develop it when he was making another green world because he recorded that entire record like in pieces. So a lot of the players on that album like had never heard anything else. He would just bring them in and be like, okay, for this, like, mm-hmm. for this, like, guitar take, just think of, you know,
0: yeah, they'd mountain. Be like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, some
3: of them are really abstract, like, a, like talking about, like, a caterpillar, like, mm-hmm. moves one leg at a time. or And wasn't
0: it, like, Phil Collins playing drums and, like, I don't know, like, I feel like Jocko or somebody crazy playing bass. There's, like, mad, wild shit on that album.
3: What, on Another Green World?
0: yeah. Uh, you know, so after their first full length, the music media was not kind to them. And so they got real self-conscious about their writing process. And apparently they wrote and recorded 40 songs that, um, they recorded multiple times and then scrapped the whole record. So it seems like it was an arduous process, which is why it took from 91 to 94 to be finished. Or like ninety three maybe, and this is for their second full length or third. This is their second one, Suvalaki. Which is Suvlock-y. um, and then when the album did come out, like the press once again didn't receive it. Well, well, I think it was actually a mixed bag, but I I wrote down one. Uh, this this journalist said. This record is a soulless void. I would rather drown choking in a bath full of porridge than ever listen to it again. Hmm. Porridge?
2: Yeah, even if even if there were certain people that liked it, it, it absolutely wasn't received as like a classic album.
1: Immediately. Yeah. Yeah, when, yeah. One criticism that I heard was, slowdive is worse than Hitler. Really? What? Yeah.
2: That was the thing they talked about, too, that they, as like, especially younger, they were adults at this point, but young adults, they couldn't understand why... Some people, like, wanted them to die. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah and people they were hated young them.
0: kids. It's like, I don't get Well, that they were all. also
2: very, like, uh, I'm pretty sure I read this on Wikipedia or something, but they were very, like, ill-advised marketing campaigns in yeah. the States with, like, stencils and stuff. Like, that,
0: insanely bad. Yeah, so just the, weird. the label they were on in the U.S. is called SBK, and I was like, I've never heard of that. I'm going to look it up. And it was just, like, started by a dude who, like... Own he's just like a businessman. He's not a mu- a music guy. It was just like he also uh was like a big shareholder in like Martha Stewart living and like all this just like <laughs> stupid <laughs> shit. And uh so I was like, oh, what other records did they put out? Vanilla Ice, Poor George, <laughs> and also Barney and Friends, Barney's favorites, volume one. Yeah. That went platinum. Good. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so for the younger kids who might not know what Barney was. <laughs> He doesn't know what Barney. They
1: still play Barney,
0: don't they? No, they, they don't. No. I, don't, yeah, I, don't yeah. a, I guarantee he's if a we turn dinosaur.
1: On... They still play
2: <laughs> Sesame Street, but I don't think they
3: do Barney. It was anymore. just a classic PBS kids show for people like me. Who didn't I guarantee cable.
1: everybody knows Barney. I guarantee you're wrong. Really? Yeah. I'm, I'm gonna go ask the next kid I see. On the sing, street, like, sing the song. No. I love <laughs> you.
0: Um, but so it was. The record was already out in the UK, and then in the US, they're doing this like viral marketing campaign where they were just stenciling the word slow dive everywhere, including like outside of the MTV office and like all these radio stations mm-hmm. and stuff. But then they also, someone, I don't know who, if it was like a label person or like a street team member or whatever, stenciled it on a statue that was like... um, it's like an celebrating, anti-slavery Yeah, statue. celebrating the end of slavery. And it says that when they unveiled it, it had the word slow dive written on it, which I just picture like them, like, pulling and, like, a sheet gasping. off of this and <laughs> it just says slow dive.
3: Well, and then the other viral campaign was, like, a street team thing where you had to, you could, like, get a free copy of the record or something yeah. if you put, you know, 20 posters up or something, but you needed, like, photographic documentation, so you had to mm-hmm. like, walk around with a camera, you know, because obviously they didn't have smartphones to so just, like, take or even a picture. digital
1: cameras, right?
3: Yeah, it was just, like, they had to have, like, a film camera mm-hmm. and, like, take the picture of like 20 things and mail it to the label. It's like at that point you spent so much on film and so much time just like
0: develop it. But then even after all that, and then it's like there was some controversy around it because that was like not a great idea, but obviously controversy is what drives like campaigns like that. It's Mm -hmm. like, but they were embarrassed by it. So they pushed the record back three months. So they didn't even use the like juice that they got from the ill-advised ad campaign so that sucked. And then it was just like, then they put out, um, well, let me see, actually. Which is put- funny
3: because, like, today, the, I feel like the botched um, viral campaign is itself like a viral campaign. There's like the really famous one here in LA, maybe it was around the country, where the, there was like some, like, you know, DUI lawyer who hung all his signs oh, upside yeah. down. Jacob. Call Jacob. Call Jacob, yeah. And it was like a thing. People would be like, check this out. The sign's upside down. And then they're like sending their friend an ad. Exactly. Or, you know, and th- now that's like been embraced, but they did not do that. And I don't think that spray painting your band name on a statue celebrating <laughs> the end of slavery is ever a good idea. No.
0: but who knows who did that. But uh, so then they're touring the record in the U.S. And that label SBK just like pulled all their funding in the middle of the tour. And so they had to, like, pay for the tour themselves. Just a whole mess. And so they did, um, they, like, raised money, like, through putting out live uh, recordings and stuff. On Bandcamp. To- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Bandcamp 94. Um, and then they released the album Pygmalion, which I think is a really cool, interesting album. And that one was actually well-received by the, the media, which is weird to me because it's very experimental. It's a much weirder record uh, A week after its release, Creation dropped them (laughs) (laughs) And also dropped Swerve Driver at the same time So Creation Records was fucking up (laughs) Um, And then, so the band just like broke up after that It was just like I totally understand the feeling of Working so hard for all this stuff And then just like nothing going your
1: way And just being like, let's just break up Yeah, and even before the record came out They were complaining about the label just not giving a shit. And like mm-hmm. I can't imagine what it would be like making a record and just not having that support of your label. Because every time we make a record, Captured Tracks is like very much championing mm-hmm. us the whole time. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine what it would feel like to be just, you know, off to the side like we don't care about you.
3: Which happens all yeah. the time. Yeah. It's yeah,
1: like it's the norm. I yeah. bet yeah. The majority of records are made like that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Especially
0: big labels like that, that like, aren't even interested in music. They're just like, how can we maximize profits for this quarter? Mm -hmm.
3: Yeah. And like an unfortunate casualty of that is like, especially when labels have artists of different sizes, like they're, when they have artists that are making so much money, they're forced to have artists that lose money. So that means just throwing a lot of artists under the bus so that they can kind of even out their profits for um,
2: like tax reasons and stuff we mentioned Pygmalion mm-hmm. and I think it's worth just talking about like the trajectory of Slow Dive um, from like a, a broader lens or whatever, because all of their records, but specifically Pygmalion, Suvlaki, and then the most recent one, which is called, I think it's self-titled. Yeah. Self-titled. Yeah. Like they're all so good, but in very different ways mm-hmm. and like, they did it over, like, uh, what did the self-title come out in 2014 or something? They got back together in 2014. I think it didn't so come like, out until 2017. Okay. Um, I mean, that's just, yeah. It's insane that they were able to, like, put out such a good record oh, after yeah. so long and have it be different and feel new. And, like, I think it's worth, like, talking about for a second. Because for for me, like, I've, I think for all of us, when we were making Deceiver, we were talking about, like longevity as a band and like wanting to make more records rather than just being like maybe this is the last one or something like that um and it's really hard to do that but Mm -hmm. like looking at a band like slow dive and mbv too because their most recent one is like as good as. yeah isn't it
3: interesting that that's kind of a like a uh a trope of shoegaze too where like you know ride MBV, slow dive, all these bands after like years mm-hmm. of not being a band and like, you know, ride hated each other. Um, you know, and then when we toured with them, they just seemed like buds they are like, Oh, we're going to go to the museum or whatever. Yeah. Like there's just this kind of, um, like a, like a unique propensity to reunite. And I don't know if it had anything to do with that shoegaze was like kind of coming back with I think like, that's all it
1: is. I think it's, it's not, it doesn't feel good to make stuff that people don't think is cool. And so, like,
3: but like they had been working on those, especially with MBV, they had been working on those records for the entire time. Yeah, you know, so like, what was the thing that made all those <coughs> shoegaze bands just come back?
1: For a Slow Dive, I think they came back just for the shows in mm. 2014, and they were like, "Yeah, fuck it, let's do it, let's make some money real quick." And the important decision came with what to do with that money, mm. and they were like rather than let's just do a reunion, make some money and go back to our lives. They took all that money and put it into a studio so that they could record the record. Mm. And that was with that longevity in mind, probably because they regretted not creating that sustainable model when they first came out. Yeah, And it
3: wasn't even just like shoegaze stopped being cool. It was like uncool.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly.
3: Uh, And it was like, you know, I think like they witnessed that firsthand and I think ride did too, where they're, um, you know, like the last, Ride record before they reformed was just like hated on, mm-hmm. and it's still hated on by the band members, I think.
1: Yeah, but it, a lot of the hatred is like unjust, and that's why yeah. we see a resurgence in shoegaze because it is actually really good and like culturally important. Whereas you don't see a resurgence in like hair metal, which right. went from being very cool to not cool in the I span actually, of like a I week. I do see it on my uh Instagram feed, is that right? Yeah, oh yeah, in, in my way? I just have a friend who
3: who has just, like, really embraced hair metal and kind of started a hair metal band.
1: Like, non-ironically? Yeah, I don't... Because there was the... Was it the Darkness band?
2: Right. Yeah, that's, like, the same kind of idea.
1: That's all tongue-in-cheek, though. That's making fun of it. It kind of came and went pretty quick, too. Yeah.
2: But also, like, the, the pastiche involved in shoegaze or the reference to the past and everything is way more ambiguous mm-hmm. so it's less time stamped and even that experience that i had listening to pig uh to souvlaki and having no understanding of how old they were for the longest time they were like ageless in my mind mm-hmm. um i think it allows for shoegaze bands to still make music and tap into that feeling that isn't like so derived or like dependent on like being like a wild right, like, person yeah. on stage or something like that. that's a good point
1: even yeah. though the lyrics weren't necessarily mature they weren't inherently immature the way right that, yeah like, you know like molly crew was just like we a party
2: mm-hmm. and too we talked about it with Crow rock last time but i think in a similar way with shoegaze there's less ego um and of course there's the ego behind the scenes and everything but musically there's there's less of a um like a traditional like lead instrument or something. And so it's just like a band playing together. I feel like it's it's probably easier. And like obscuring yourself. Yeah, exactly.
1: And yeah. like obscuring your playing. Yeah,
2: totally. And like blending in. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: The Dive Podcast. You guys wanna to try to do a little jam? Of uh, some shoegaze sounding shit. No, I'm good.
1: (laughs) Plumber's at my house. (laughs) I gotta go anyway. (laughs) Uh, Just kidding. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious how it's gonna work because there's more defined like rhythm guitars, but it's kind of like both the guitars are rhythm-y, right? Mm -hmm.
3: And like the delay is a huge rhythm thing. So like we, you know, if we sync the delay to the same tempo, Mm -hmm. and then it's like the you know slow dive is kind of the expert. At that, especially watching them live. It's just so... All the delays are just perfect. You know, and he'll hit the chord one time and it'll ring out for like two bars.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I was listening to, I think, Alison... and trying to figure out what it is, because Allie, my girlfriend, was like, there's something about this progression that just, like, really hits me when it goes to the last chord. And I'm looking at it, and I'm like, this is just, like, one, five, four, five. You know, it's, like, really basic stuff. And it just is all in those, like, weird artifacts left over by mm-hmm. the delays and everything, and, like, the bass hit in the second you were yeah, talking about. Yeah, the second about. note in the bass is huge. And just, like, all these things that... and it. You know, that's what I think of a shoegaze is taking like a really simple idea and then just fleshing it out to the max, you know, and and using like expert production to make it sound, you know, take a a four chord progression and turn it into this masterpiece. Mm -hmm.
3: Well, let's do that. Yeah, let's try that. (laughs) It's easy.